This is our second last lesson on Christ's community. Um, our last lesson will be on the high school retreat. So those of you that are not going on the high school retreat because you're not in high school, um, check that out on iTunes. You'll be able to get it there. Um, that one is on journaling. So it is a spiritual discipline that we'll be talking about, but it's what I call a non-essential spiritual discipline. I just think it's very good for you to at least have an intro on what is journaling and how can that enhance our faith. So this week, we're going to cover an aspect of Christ's community that's so foundational that would be easy to miss. It's a spiritual discipline that's been practiced since Moses. And while it's a self-evident phrase, evident as the phrase, words make a sentence, or the phrase, I am speaking English, it is more and more missed in our culture. And this is the phrase, Christians worship God. Christians worship God. We worship God. We worship. Jesus makes it clear when he's tempted by Satan in Matthew 4.10. You shall worship the Lord your God. But does that mean we can worship God in any way that we determine? Does that mean we can worship God in any way that we determine? If you spent any time in the Old Testament, you know God had very specific ways in which he called his Um, people to worship him. He spent whole books of the Bible detailing specific practices in which they would carry out temple worship. The first murder of Abel by Cain was in response to Cain's worship not being satisfactory to God. And Cain was jealous that Abel's was. Worship is to be done a certain way, and the Bible gives us the parameters about how to go about it. But one question I get from time to time regarding worship is this. Why does God require a certain way of worship? Why why does God require a certain way of worship? I think the answer is much simpler than that we tend to overthink it. And that's this. It's your first fill in the blank. It's to remind us that he is God and we are not. It's to remind us that he is God and we are not. Most of you have been around the human condition long enough. If worship were left to us, it would cost us little, take up only the amount of time that we determine, and would be as comfortable as one of those five-star hotel king beds. Very comfortable. When man is left to worship, we get temple prostitution and the caste systems. Just read your history book. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't diversity in our worship. God does not call us to all Anglo-centric Presbyterian worship. He calls us to worship God. That will look different at the Japanese church on the top of the mountain in the African church down in the valley than it will the American church in the suburbs. Worship will look different because our cultures are different. But it has certain aspects that are to our worship that I want to encourage you all in today. As you look to be Christ's community, as we as a community look to be that community, what are we supposed to do when it comes to worship? First, it's your next one on the blank. It doesn't start and stop on Sunday. It doesn't start and stop on a Sunday. 
I should have ended the phrase with this. But it does culminate. It does reach its crescendo. It does climax. It is a day that's set apart from the Lord that we get to enjoy him the way that he has decreed. And this is your next fill in the blank. Your worship of God will be magnified on Sunday if you choose to spend time with him Monday through Saturday. Your worship of God will be magnified on Sunday if you spend time with him Monday through Saturday. This is not common core math. This is pretty simple. Okay? We are called to worship God. We are called to meet together. And we are called to meet privately with the Lord. And each will enhance the other. Think about the disciples. They spent all the time they wanted with Jesus. And if others wanted to learn from him, they weren't limited to the Sabbath. When he was at the temple worship, Jesus never went, no, okay, just come find me on a Sunday. We'll talk about God then. No, he didn't do that. It was all the time. Jesus taught all the time. Likewise, you have more ways to interact with Jesus than ever before. Interact with him throughout the week, and your Sunday will be even better. You have the words of God at your fingertips. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you if you're a believer. You have the very essence of God at your core. Isaiah 55:11. So shall my words be, the, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's talking about the words of the Lord that we read within Scripture. If you are devouring that, it will change you. The reason I bring this up is because the average Christian in America goes to church about two times a month. It's actually less than that. It's like 1.7. And the amount of time they spend in private worship, according to statistics, is proportionate to the amount of time they spend to worship on Sunday. So if you're there four times a month, you're more likely to spend more time in private worship. If you're there 0.5 times a month, you're likely to spend that amount of time in private worship like equal to it. Which leads me to another question, which we have to answer, which is this. Which one is more important? Which one is more important, private worship or public worship? Well, the author of Hebrews makes it clear that meeting together is really important. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. From from this passage, it's clear that missing time together is not a new concept. Even the early church had people that thought they could do it on their own and just come to church occasionally. But the Bible stressed private study and worship as well. Look at the time that even Jesus spent alone worshiping his Father. See the instructions he gave his disciples in Matthew 6.6. The idea that private and congregational worship are at odds is what we call a false dichotomy. Both are equally important because both enhance the other. But our culture places one above the other simply by their vote on where they spend their Sunday mornings. Private worship has become heightened in America. Well, what do I mean by that? Private worship has become... In a sense, an idol... Go into your average Christian bookstore, right? You're going to see a whole, you're going to see sections on like 
personal Bible studies, right? But how many books are there on how do we work together as a church? Like there's like one small section on like how do we be a church, and the rest of it is like, okay, it's all about me and my walk. Okay? We, we, we still think of it as this individual thing and not as this corporate thing. And I think some of that has to do with the English language. I really wish we did have the like New Texas version of the Bible because most of the yous in the New Testament are y'alls. Um, and we, we miss that, right? We just see you and we think it's all personal. But really, it's, it's us together as a body. Well, this series is called Christ's Community. And this is your next fill in the blank. Do you know what the opposite of community is? Opposite of community is autonomy. For those of you that have not taken 10th grade English yet, auto-nomy, A-U-T-O-N-O-M-Y. Autonomy. Autonomy... Think about this. Autonomy defines the American teenager. Autonomy defines the American teenager. You live in the wait not yet segment of your life. You live in the wait not yet segment of life. You are preparing to go to the college, the military, or the workforce, but for the majority of you, you aren't there yet. You're preparing, you're in the wait not yet. You're almost there, which might terrify some of you, but you aren't there. So we send you to school or give you school at home and tell you that this will have great impact on the rest of your life and your future is determined by the letter that is placed on the top of the quiz or homework or test or project. And the key word there is your quiz, homework, test, or project. It's all up to you, right? And this is the next fill in the blank. And this is the catch that took me so long to figure out. You will always be limited or enhanced by the community around you. You will always be limited or enhanced by the community around you. Think about it. Even the five-year-old knows this intuitively. The five-year-old girl goes to play on the playground, but because she treats people, because of the way she treats people, she she's Mrs. Know-it-all, it's harder for her to find friends. So while she might have the highest grades in the class in kindergarten, she still goes home miserable because none of her peers care about her grades. They just care that she calls them names like dumb or stupid and tells everyone that she's smarter than everyone else, right? Her actions in the community have limited her. It's one of the reasons they give you group projects at school, okay? It's the hope that you will learn how to work together. Mind you, that rarely ever happens, right? One of you always ends up doing all the work. But the theory goes, the theory goes for group projects, that the group that learns how to work together will be the most successful. Believe it or not, this typically plays out. While the one who did all the work for their group because their group was lazy or inferior might get the same grade as the group that did well together, the person who did the solo effort has learned in his group project or her group project not to trust anybody else. And they've not been afforded the opportunity to lead. Only the opportunity to clean up. Conversely, the group has worked that has worked together, even if it still has one leader managing the others uh, to do slightly less work, that leader has learned to trust and create community. Which one over the course of the life do you think will find more meaning? Which one over the course of the life do you think will find more meaning? The leader who has learned not to trust or the leader that has learned to work well with others? 
While American stressed autonomy, we stress autonomy in America, we are awful at community. That's the main reason anxiety, depression, and suicide, and frankly homicide, have all skyrocketed in your generation. Because we don't know how to do community well. Stay on point. Sorry. There's a huge rabbit trail right there that I was so tempted by staying here. Because we put autonomy over community, and we think it won't have consequences. Well, the consequences already exist, right? The consequences to the culture that you live in that stresses autonomy already exist. Now the church community needs to learn how to deal with it. And it's one of the things worship does. And that's why we are doing this series. That's why worship is so important. Worship exists to remind you that you are not the main player in the story of life. Worship exists to remind you that you are not the main player in the story of life. You're not autonomous. And that should give you freedom. That should give you freedom. You know what you were best created to be? You know what you were best created to be? This is your next fill in the blank. It's a platitude, but I think it's true. To be you in the midst of others to the glory of God. That's that's what you were best created to be. The design of human life, the design of church, your purpose is to be you. We talked. Remember when we talked about spiritual gifts last week? That's how God designed you, to be you in the midst of others. So your strengths can be enhanced and your, li- and your weaknesses can be limited. To, to what end? To the glory of God. That you're not the main player in the story. That Jesus is. That you get to come alongside and that should give you freedom. Because I promise you, if you spend your whole life focusing on being autonomous, you'll be miserable because you were never designed to carry that weight. Second, how do we worship? We worship God in spirit and truth. Turn to John 4 with me. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 4. John's the fourth gospel, fourth book in the New Testament. Four is the number that comes after three. And before five. This is one of my favorite um, passages for a variety of reasons. I feel like I could preach a whole series on this. It's Jesus and the woman of the well. We're going to be at verse 21. Jesus has met the woman at the well, and after a short question from the woman about the proper way to worship... She's got that question too. How do I worship? This is what Jesus said to her. Jesus said to her, this is verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. This is another one of those passages when people are like, well, Jesus never claims to be God. I mean, just... Okay. Okay. Well, if you gathered from this conversation, think about this. Even Jesus is correcting the way in which people worship. Even Jesus is correcting the way in which people worship. That means there are false ways to worship. He makes it clear where salvation is from. It is from the Jewish people. He tells the woman that she worships what she doesn't know. That's a little offensive, Jesus. Imagine if you put that on Twitter. People would explode at him, right? What? How offensive. That isn't politically correct, right? No, but you don't even know it. That could be taken as a slight. And then he says that we will worship the Father and in spirit and truth. And we've already covered spirit, believe it or not. The woman's question was about location. Where should I worship God? On the mountain or in the temple in Jerusalem? Where? And God makes it clear that he is spirit. God is not limited to a location. Here is Here he is talking about both private and congregational worship. That was point one. We already covered that. You're going to worship in spirit. Here on Sundays, when you worship alone, when you do private worship at home throughout the week, when you pray to him in your car on the way to school, when you got that person that's really bothering you in the lunchroom, and you're like, dear God, help me love this person or I'm going to lose it, right? Behind the plate, behind stage, backstage, when you're working at work, God's not limited. You can, you can interact with him at all times. Curtain's torn. It, you're, he's there. Okay? So, so what about truth? Talk about spirit. What about truth? He makes it clear that truth is not a philosophy or a class or a YouTube channel. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. What all things is she referring to? The truth. He'll tell us the truth. He'll tell us what we need to do. What, what, should, what should we believe? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the truth. What I'm telling you, you should believe. Listen to me. Listen to my words. She's so taken back by this person, his offer of forgiveness, his willingness to table with her at the well, that she invites him back to her town for two days, and he goes. The Spirit of the Lord and the man God Jesus goes where the Jews said the Spirit was not to go. And he offers them himself. Look at the text says later in verse 40. Jump to verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. What's his word? The truth spoken to them by the Spirit. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. Next, fill in the blank. Believing correct things about Jesus is important. Believing correct things about Jesus is important. That's why we believe theology is so important. If you believe wrong things about Jesus, then you do not know the truth. It's simple. Namely, you don't know this Jesus. 
It's a silly story, but I, I'm, I'm convinced God gave me this story and experience in my life simply for this. So my brother is named David Swanson. As a child, he had brown hair, flat top wearing, high energy swimmer when he was in elementary school. And he had another friend in the neighborhood, ironically named David Swanson, who was blonde, bowl cut, chill, baseball player. If someone came up to me and said, do you know David Swanson? I could say, sure, he's my brother. But if they went on to describe the other guy, he would be as different to me as a stranger. Knowing the right David Swanson in the right context is important. Knowing the real Jesus in the context of reality is equally important. Three, worship is a discipline to be cultivated. Worship is a discipline to be cultivated. Donald Whitney says this, To worship God throughout a lifetime requires discipline. Without discipline, our worship of God will be thin and inconsistent. Certainly, worship must be more than a discipline, more than simply the proper expression of the correct words and forms. So when I say that worship is focusing on and responding to God, I hope to convey my conviction that true worship always exudes evidence of heart prints. Worship can't be calculated or produced. Instead, it's evoked from you. It's the response of the heart evoked by the beauty, glory, and allure of the object of God. And yet, we also consider worship a discipline, a discipline that must be cultivated, just as all relationships must be in order for them to remain healthy and grow. How can you make your worship more enjoyable? How can you make your worship more fulfilling? How can you make your worship more lasting? How can you make your worship more rich? Have you ever asked any of those questions? Many of you haven't missed a week of church in years. Or if you have, it's rare. But you might feel yourself in a rut, right? This happens. I didn't get much sleep last night. Yay, toddlers and babies, right? And I'm like sitting there, like he, Patrick makes an announcement of ABC, and I'm like, yeah, I remember ABC. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. Stick one. Stick together. Stick together. You know? And it was hard. And I wasn't completely fulfilled this morning in my worship. I taught Sunday school. I went back, watched Ashley teach us awesome children's church class, right? And then I came back, sang a song as my kids are poking me. Like, you're going to go through a season where it does feel like a rut. Or it's like, I don't want to get up. And then you're going to grow up, right? And then you have the option, right? All right. <laughs> I'm not feeling good. I'm feeling a little punk. As my grandpa used to say, right? I'm feeling punk, can't go. Okay? And this is when worship, 
will feel routine instead of a spiritual discipline. Many of us hear the word discipline, and this is interesting. Many of us hear the word discipline, and you assume that it means there won't be much joy. But anyone knows that a discipline used correctly can bring about more joy than ever before. I've got to see Patrick Taliantic rise through the ranks to become a black belt. I can promise you he enjoys that much more now than he did when he was a little white belt getting his butt kicked. Right? I've got to see um, uh, ball player have discipline behind the plate. Ball players got to have discipline behind the plate if they want to enjoy success. Right? You don't, don't, you don't swing at every pitch unless you're Joey Gallo. Right? Sorry. Discipline produces joy of success. A lack of discipline is a sign of immaturity. A lack of discipline is a sign of immaturity. It's one of the reasons your parents put down a list of expectations. They want to, they want to discipline you to have a good life. I don't say this to slam your character. Please don't hear that. I don't say, I don't say that to slam your character. I say that to say that you have more you can gain from discipline in your life. I have more I can be disciplined in, even at my age, which means I have more joy before me than I do behind me. I have more joy before me than I do behind me. Why? Because God has laid down these disciplines that if I follow, it will be there. And again, I've not met anyone who has not gone through these disciplines that we've talked about over the course of years and decades that has not found peace. These are gifts. These disciplines are gifts for your joy. Okay? 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Great first to memorize. Great first to memorize. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all runners run? Well, duh. But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Your next one, the blank, is a long one, but I couldn't shorten it. I am calling you to carry your cross. I am calling you to carry your cross, but I am also calling you to fill your cup. I am calling you to deny yourself and gain the world. I am calling you to worship, not because you don't know how, but because we so regularly forget who to worship. I'll end with a quote by John MacArthur. The present benefit of spiritual discipline is a fulfilled, God-blessed, fruitful, and this is what I love, and useful life. If you get involved in spiritual gymnastics, the blessing of godliness will carry you on into eternity. Although many people spend far more time exercising their bodies than their souls, the excellent servant of Jesus Christ realizes that the spiritual this, this, that spiritual discipline is a priority. And I hope it becomes that for you. I really hope that becomes that for you. It was at this time in, 
my life when I was your age, where I was, you know, I'd just become a believer as an eighth grader, and I'm like, okay, what does it look like to run this race? And I found joy in the midst of these disciplines. I found peace in the midst of these disciplines. I found frustration, I found tears, and I found more questions in the midst of these disciplines too. But as I transversed this landscape, it gave me such a a peace about the next steps that would come in life. That no matter if I did the military or college or, you know, I, I went to work right after, or I took a year break, or I did the mission field, or I became a barber. I mean, you, you do what you want, right? Like, that you'll have peace moving forward because these disciplines will give you that, will give you purpose, and, and you'll find joy and in within community.